Yapritira vivekanam vishayeshu anapaini Tvamanus marata same hrudayan mapasarpatu Tvameva mata chapita tvameva Tvameva bandhus chasaka tvameva Tvameva vidyadravinam tvameva Tvameva sarvam mamadeva deva that intense love which the ignorant bear towards the objects of this world, may I have that same intensity of love for thee. For thou art our mother, thou our father, thou our only friend and companion, thou art our only wealth and knowledge, thou art our all in all, O God of gods. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Om Peace, Peace, Peace be unto us all. Good morning everyone. This morning the uh, topic is the personal and the impersonal. I have to admit when I chose the title I wasn't feeling especially inspired. Uh, the topic I think is a good one, but um, I got a uh, call from Atma here in Hollywood who arranges our uh, schedule and or else an email and says within three days I need a topic and so I routinely forget about it until he sends the reminder that I need it within five minutes and <laughs> by that time I have to come up with whatever I can come up with. So the personal and the impersonal, again it's a good topic, uh, uninspired title, but a good topic because uh, it's central to understanding uh, Vedanta. It's one of those things that's central to understanding Vedanta, and it's one of those things that uh, we can spend uh, 40 or 50 years in Vedanta and not really understand the distinction. There's a great deal of misunderstanding over what the impersonal is and what the personal is. That is, the approach to the impersonal reality and the approach towards the personal God, God as person. Um, I'm frequently asked about the difference between these two concepts, the approach between these two, these two different approaches to uh, reality, these two different approaches to uh, uh, spiritual life. And there are many people who say, well, I follow the path of jnana. Uh, and what they really mean is, I don't like all of this devotional stuff. Uh, and I don't really feel a strong personal relationship to God like a son or daughter or uh, uh, friend or whatever. Uh, but that's not enough to be on the path of jnana. Uh, just because we don't feel a strong relationship with God and because we don't maybe feel comfortable with uh, deities and so forth, it doesn't, uh, that doesn't uh, 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 mean that we are on the path of jnana, the path of the impersonal. Uh, yes, we're on a path, but it, uh, it uh, uh, may not be the path of the impersonal. So it's important for us to understand uh, what the distinction is so that we actually know what, uh, what path we're on. Uh, a lot of people who say I'm on the path of knowledge, what they really mean is that I'm on the path of what is called in the Vaishnava tradition of Vedanta, uh, the Shantabhava, that is the peaceful attitude towards God. Uh, some of you know that uh, the Vaishnavas, the uh, tradition of uh, Vaishnavas in Vedanta, those who worship Krishna and Rama, but especially in this case, uh, Sri Krishna, 
uh, they talk about the five bhavas, the five attitudes towards God, the attitude uh, towards God, God as uh, uh, the uh, servant to, to the master, God is the master and I'm the servant of God, uh, God as a uh, 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 friend, uh, friend and companion, uh, God as uh, the uh, or God as the child, and I as the mother of God, and child or and God as the spouse. Uh, I the uh, the lover of God, God my beloved, and the fifth one is actually the first, and that's the Shantabhava, That is the peaceful attitude, the peaceful attitude, as uh, Sri Ramakrishna explained, and as is explained traditionally also, is the attitude that uh, like the Upanishad or the Vedic rishis had towards God. Uh, that is, that God is, uh, I seek God, I seek to know God, but there's not the intensity of uh, this human relationship established with God. And so many people who say that I'm on the uh, path of knowledge really mean that I'm on the path of the Shantabhava. Yes, there is the path of knowledge, obviously, and there are people who actually follow it. Uh, but in order for us to have a clear understanding of what we're doing and what we're following and how to follow better what we're doing, it's good to have a clear idea. Because if indeed we're on the path of the Shantabhava, the peaceful attitude towards God, uh, then uh, that we can enhance. That also is a good, uh, a good approach to God. So today I hope to clarify the terms uh, and their implications for spiritual practice, what it means to follow these two different paths. And these are, in one sense, these are the two major categories of spiritual life. We have uh, in uh, biology, which uh, much of biology, as you know, is classification of living systems into uh, different, uh, different, well, different categories. There's the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, and within these two kingdoms, uh, there are many sub-classifications all the way down to species, genus and species, but you go through the phylum and family and so forth, to genus and species. And so the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, these are two huge categories. And so in spiritual life also, there are two huge categories that, uh, that uh, uh, contain all the diversity in different religions. One is the impersonal path and the other is the personal path. And uh, uh, so one way of looking at spiritual life is that there are these two great uh, approaches with many, many sub-approaches uh, within them. You've all heard, of course, and you know of the four yogas. Uh, in India, traditionally, many yogas were spoken of. It was really Swami Vivekananda who categorized all of spiritual striving within these four headings. In India, you read about Kundalini Yoga, Loya Yoga, Mantra Yoga, Japa Yoga, uh, so many different, diff Kundalini Yoga, so many different types of uh, yogas. Uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, there are 18 chapters, and each chapter is named a different yoga. So the Bhagavad Gita has 18 different yogas according to its uh, division into chapters. Uh, and uh, traditionally, most uh, philosophers, Vedanta philosophers, they spoke of three paths as compre uh, comprehensive. That is, karma yoga, they said that one practiced just for purification of mind. And then, depending on whether you were a jnani or a bhakta, uh, bhakta, then if you were a jnani, you would say that bhakti might come next for further purification, and then you come to the real path, which is jnana yoga, the path of knowledge. Uh, bhakta would say the opposite, that uh, like Ramanuja, he gave a place to jnana yoga, the path of knowledge. He said first karma yoga for purification, and then jnana yoga to find out 
that I am a soul. And then the soul goes in search of God, and that's bhakti yoga. That's the final path. But the traditional commentators, like Ramanuja, Shankaracharya, and many, many others, when they gave these three different paths, all of them had the idea that one was the real path and others were just preparatory, just leading to it. Swami Vivekananda said, and this is uh, more consistent with the ancient tradition of Vedanta, that there were four paths and the, each of these paths was in itself an approach to reality. The path of action, the path of concentration or meditation, the path of devotion and the path of knowledge, that these four uh, karma, raja, uh, uh, bhakti, and jnana, these four paths are the four paths which, under which all spiritual striving can be categorized. So first I said that there are these two big categories, the impersonal and the personal approaches, and then there are these four, and both uh, ways of categorizing say that they are comprehensive, that all of spiritual striving can be categorized underneath them. And that's because there are uh, within the four yogas, there are two pairs of yogas. And one pair is the path of devotion and the path of knowledge. Bhakti yoga and jnana yoga, the path of uh, devotion and the path of knowledge. The path of devotion is the path of the approach to God as person, so it's the personal path. Jnana yoga is the path of uh, the approach to, or the, the path towards the impersonal, uh, the impersonal reality. And this pair concerns the jnana and bhakti. They concern our relationship to reality itself. What is real? What is reality? What is it that we seek in spiritual life? These two, not all four, but these two are concerned with what it is that we're seeking, the end that we're seeking, the goal that we're seeking, whether we're seeking to know God as person through a loving relationship, or whether we're seeking to know the impersonal reality, uh, existence itself, consciousness itself, reality itself. Uh, the, other, uh, the other pair, Raja Yoga and Karma Yoga, those are concerned more with our approach to practice. Are we more concerned with working with the mind itself, or are we more concerned with work in the outer world, how to find our way through the world, through participation in the world, to find our way to reality? So Karma and Raja Yoga are more concerned with uh, the path. Bhakti and Jnana Yoga are more concerned with uh, the, the, the end that we're seeking, the goal that we're seeking. And yes, all four of them are paths, but they can be, uh, uh, one path is related to our orientation to reality and the other our orientation to uh, uh, practice. So um, it's possible, for instance, to follow Raja Yoga, either from an impersonal standpoint or from a personal standpoint. Oftentimes, uh, many Raja Yogis, those who follow the path of Raja Yoga as their main path, uh, they follow it as a science, and they're seeking to uh, control the mind in order to attain to, uh, uh, to know truth. And so that's more of an impersonal approach. But it's also possible to follow the path of Raja Yoga from a devotional standpoint. Even the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali mention, uh, mention this. They give meditations on God, God as person. One of uh, the one person I know that was more of a Raja Yogi than anyone I've ever known, he was also a great devotee. His path was definitely the path of devotion, but his means was Raja Yoga. Uh, Pauhari Baba, the great saint uh, that Swami Vivekananda met and knew, 
Um, uh, he was a Raja Yogi, but he followed it uh, as a means to attain to devotion. So devotion was that which he was seeking, or the God, personal God was what he was seeking, but Raja Yoga was his means, the science uh, that he used. And so Raja Yoga can be followed either to attain to the impersonal or to the personal, because Raja Yoga is a technique. It's not concerned with, uh, not so concerned with the nature of reality itself, but how to prepare yourself to attain to that which is true however you conceive of it. Karma yoga, similarly. There are many uh, great karma yogis uh, in the history of the world who were primarily devotional. You could say that Mother Teresa was a recent example that's well known. There are many others in recent times too, but she's perhaps the best known in recent times. Somebody whose approach to reality was devotional, but the way she practiced was largely through karma yoga. Swami Vivekananda used to present the Buddha uh, the historical Buddha, Gautama Buddha, as a karma yogi who sought the impersonal. Buddha, of course, as you know, didn't teach anything about God, didn't, wasn't interested in the question of God. Whether God existed or not, he refused to answer. Uh, but what, uh, what he was seeking was the, an impersonal reality, and the way he sought it was through karma yoga. He, of course, practiced meditation. He taught meditations. But as Swami Vivekananda showed, that the, the Buddha... His motive for practicing was always to find a way beyond suffering for everybody, to find a way beyond suffering for all of us. When he went in search of the truth, he didn't go because he was suffering and he wanted to, to find a way out for himself. He went in search of the truth. He renounced the world because he saw that people are suffering and he wanted to find a way out for everyone. And so that, in Vivekananda's eyes, made him the ideal of uh, karma yoga. <clears throat> And then you have, uh, among the, uh, besides Mother Teresa, you have someone like Brother Lawrence, who wrote that beautiful book, uh, or he didn't write the book, but his letters were made into the book, Practice of the Presence of God, a beautiful book on Christian devotion, but something that's universal, useful for anyone on any path. In, uh, 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 in that you see that Brother Lawrence was a karma yogi, but his approach to reality was devotional. So again, the first uh, important point to understand is that the four yogas can be divided into two pairs, bhakti and karma, uh, related to how we see reality, whether we see it in personal terms or whether we see it in impersonal terms. Jnana, I mean, uh, raja and karma yoga, more related to how we practice, and they're not so concerned with the nature of reality itself, or they're not tied to a particular view of reality. So uh, uh, neither karma yoga nor raja yoga demands that we believe in God. You can follow either of these paths without even believing in God. Or you can follow either of them uh, with God as the goal of your longing, as God as the goal of your seeking. And so they're agnostic, you could say, as far as uh, relationship to God. Among the four yogas, only bhakti yoga demands belief in God. If you want to follow bhakti yoga, uh, you can't say, well, I'm going to be a bhakta, but I don't believe in God, and I don't, I'm not interested in God. No. If you follow bhakti yoga, that means that you are seeking God, that you have at least an initial, at least a provisional belief in the existence of God. If you're following jnana yoga uh, as your main path, uh, then that means that your conception of reality is primarily impersonal. You may believe in God, or you may not. It doesn't matter. 
It's possible to follow jnana yoga. Many jnana yogis believe in God, but that's, God is not the main driving force of their seeking. What they're seeking is the impersonal reality. So I've been using all of these terms, personal and impersonal, so now I need to back up and explain what I mean by personal and impersonal. So that's really the meat of the subject. And unfortunate uh, 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 metaphor for the topic. <laughs> so, so the uh, impersonal, impersonal reality. If you study Vivekananda's works, uh, if you study books like the uh, Ashtavakra Samhita, if you study uh, works of Ramana Maharshi, uh, you begin to get an idea of the impersonal because uh, Vivekananda taught both. He taught the devotion and he taught uh, the path of the impersonal. But he often speaks in terms of the impersonal. And so in Vivekananda, Ramana Maharshi, the Ashtavakra Samhita, the Yoga Vashishta, all of these, and the Upanishads largely. The Upanishads contain both, but certainly the emphasis in the major Upanishads is on the impersonal. Uh, so what do we mean when we say the impersonal reality? Most of us, when we think of something which is impersonal, first of all, we think of something which is cold and heartless. So he's, he's a very impersonal person. He's not, not very personable. Uh, means that there's a person that's uh, cold and heartless and doesn't care about other people. So first of all, when we talk about the impersonal reality, we have to take that idea out of our minds. We're not talking about something which is cold and uh, hard-hearted. It has nothing to do uh, with that. Also, when we think of something which is not personal, we think of a stone, a rock, a wall, a brick, something like that, something which is dead and insentient. You can't get more personality-less than a rock or a brick. Uh, so often our ideas of impersonal is tied to that which is insentient, that which is unconscious, that which is dead, dull, uh, and uh, lacking in personality. So that also we have to take out of our minds when we're thinking of reality in terms of the impersonal. Yes, to a hardcore materialist, to a, materi uh, to a materialist, to one who believes that ma matter is ultimate reality, that matter is all that there is, and everything else is just uh, the product of combinations of matter. Uh, to them, yes, uh, everything is basically impersonal, because even our personality is just a combination of dull, dead, and sentient matter. And so for a materialist, reality is uh, impersonal in that sense, in the sense that it's dull, dead, and lacking in uh, personality. But that's not, of course, what we mean on the sp uh, spiritual path, not, not what we mean in Vedanta when we speak about the impersonal reality. So we should get rid of, when speaking of impersonal reality in spiritual terms, we need to get rid of the ideas of cold, dead, uh, cold uh, uh, and uh, unfeeling, and we need to get rid of the idea of uh, uh, lacking in personality uh, that is dull, dead, and, and sentient. Because the impersonal in those terms is below personality. And what we mean in Vedanta when we speak of the impersonal reality is a reality which is so transcendent of all of our concepts that even the concept of personality doesn't apply. Even the concept of personality is transcended. And so we're talking about something which is above personality, not below personality. We're talking about a principle, a principle as opposed to a person. But here, principle doesn't mean something which is a mental abstraction. 
The problem is that we have so many ideas which are contrary to what it is we're trying to convey when we speak in Vedanta of the impersonal. When we speak of principles, usually, like a scientific principle, or a principle of linguistics, or a principle of uh, uh, literary analysis, or whatever, wherever we're talking about a principle, or a moral principle, or whatever, we're talking about a rule or a law. And a rule or a law, of course, is uh, insentient, it's, uh, it's, and it's a mental abstraction. But the impersonal reality is not an abstraction. We may, in thinking about it, have to use mental abstractions, because that's the only way right now that we can conceive of such things. But the reality itself is intensely real, intensely living, uh, intensely, uh, well, intensely real. There's not much else that you can say about it. You can't say that it's tangible, because that means you can touch it. Uh, you can't say that it's uh, conceivable, because that means that you can think about it. You can't. Uh, and so it's intensely real, intensely living in a sense, but not in the sense that we, our bodies, are, are, are living, that biological systems are living. So I'll come back to these two terms. I'll move on to personal in a moment, but I'll come back to impersonal as we go forward in the talk uh, to get a deeper understanding of it. But first, let's understand that the impersonal means that which is beyond personality, that which can't be fitted into any category of the mind, any category of thinking. It's so far above uh, such uh, categories that uh, we're left uh, uh, just uh, sp speaking of it in abstractions but the reality is not abstract at all. So what is, let's come for a few minutes to personality. What is personality? When we say that I'm seeking, I'm on the path of the personal God, I'm seeking God as person, what, uh, what does that mean? In modern times, it hasn't always been such, but in modern times especially, personality is believed to be rooted in our uh, psychophysiology that uh, uh, my personality is tied to my uh, body and my mind. And so when we speak of personality in modern times, uh, we can't get away, or it's hard to get away, we can, and we need to, but it's hard to get away from the idea that personality means an embodied being, an embodied uh, person, a person that has a body and mind, somebody who's uh, physically uh, uh, living. But uh, personhood is not tied to the body. To show that, we can uh, give the example of people who have had near-death experiences, which are not that uncommon. It may be that some here have uh, had near-death experiences. They're not, uh, not common, but they're not that uncommon. Uh, in, in many near-death experiences, and I've known people who have had such experiences, uh, it's common if you, uh, in such experiences that the person experiences themselves as outside of the body. They, sometimes you hear about and read about, and uh, I've also talked to people who've had this experience. Uh, the, the, the person is in the hospital, the doctors uh, see that all life processes have stopped, the heartbeat is gone, respiration is stopped, and they try to revive the person. But the person is looking, from the whole, uh, looking at the whole thing from the vantage point of a corner of the operation theater or the hospital room. They're looking down, seeing their body down there, seeing the doctors working on them. And uh, so they're not in the body and yet they experience themselves as persons. So their personhood is not tied to the body. Uh, another example of that, though it's harder to understand, but it's nonetheless true, we lose our bodies every single day. When we go to sleep, we're not in the body. You'll say, well, Swami, you are in the body. We're in the body when we're asleep. Uh, you go into, when you're asleep, we'll go into your room, and we can see you there uh, lying in bed. 
well, no, you see my body lying in bed. That's not where I am. That's not where you are when you're asleep either. Uh, we're so used to thinking that the, what other people see of us is the reality that we ignore what we see ourselves. Our own experience is that at the time of sleeping, whether I'm dreaming or not dreaming, uh, I'm not aware of the body. Yes, from time to time I wake up enough to be aware that I'm turning over in bed or I'm a little restless in bed or something. But when I'm really asleep, I'm not aware of the body. And so why should I think that what other people report about what they see of my body, that that's what's true of me? No, every night we go to sleep and we lose all awareness of the body, and yet we're still persons. Uh, and so personhood is not tied to the body. Someday in our deep meditation, we uh, may experience, and all of us in some, this lifetime or another, will experience in the depths of meditation that it's possible to uh, lose completely the awareness of the body and still be a person. So personhood is not related to being a physical body. Harder to understand is the fact that being a person is not even tied to uh, the, 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 our ordinary processes, of mental processes, psychological processes. So God as person doesn't mean that God has a body. It doesn't mean that God uh, has a mind uh, uh, or a body. What the essence of personhood is, the essence of personhood is a consciousness which can relate to my consciousness. If I'm, uh, I'm relating to you uh, right now, you're relating to me, and uh, uh, we recognize each other as, uh, as persons. If uh, we were in a, a dark cave and someone were to enter into the cave and to sit down, and after all the noise had stopped, we know that the person is there. Maybe this person speaks to us and we speak back. We understand each other. We don't see each other's bodies. And so the body is uh, superfluous in that experience as far as communication. But what makes us two persons in this dark cave is the fact that we can communicate with each other. We can talk to each other. We can understand each other. Um, and so the essence of personhood is the ability of one consciousness to relate to another consciousness. And so God is the infinite consciousness, God as person is the infinite consciousness who responds to me as a person, whom I can love and who loves me, whom I can pray to and who answers my prayer, whom I can worship and who receives my worship. So intrinsic to the idea of God is not that God has a body. Yes, they're the Hindu deities who have uh, not physical bodies, but they have form, Shiva and Kali and so forth. Though it's also recognized in most traditions of Vedanta, and certainly in ours, in the Ramakrishna tradition, and most traditions, uh, that God, uh, even these uh, deities, have a formless aspect as well as a formful aspect. They can take on form to appear to human consciousness in a form, but it's not a physical form, it's a spiritual form. It's a form made of pure consciousness, not made of meat. Uh, and bones and so forth. And so uh, it can appear in form and it can appear formless as well. Uh, but it's personal. Why is it personal? Why is God, whether you're thinking of a Hindu deity like Shiva or Krishna or Kali uh, or an incarnation like Ramakrishna or Buddha or Jesus uh, or just God, just G-O-D, God, uh, why is it, what is it that makes them a person, a personal God? Personal God means, again, that God, the infinite consciousness, knows me, can respond to me, uh, can, uh, can communicate with me. 
Uh, and I am a person because I can communicate with others, other consciousnesses. My consciousness can relate to your consciousness. My consciousness can relate to God's consciousness. So what about the impersonal? Doesn't the impersonal have the ability to communicate with us? No. It's not that it doesn't have the ability to. It's that the impersonal is beyond the very concept of relationship. The impersonal is the infinite reality where there's no other, there's no second. So who's going to relate to whom? Where is there any relationship there? There is no relationship. That's why some have said, some great sages have said, that Brahman doesn't even know that there's a world, because to Brahman there is no world. There is no world. To Brahman, to the impersonal, there is no world. There's the infinite reality. When there's the world and you're aware of the world, then you're a person. As long as you're aware of a world and other beings within a world, you are a person aware of other persons. And so God is that, in Vedanta, God is that impersonal reality. And I realize these are difficult concepts, but just bear with me a little bit. Uh, God is that impersonal reality in relationship to the world and its living beings. What makes God personal is, again, that it's that infinite reality which relates itself lovingly and consciously and with all wisdom, infinite wisdom, infinite uh, uh, virtues, uh, relates itself to all living beings, to me, to you, to, uh, to other beings. And so the path of the personal is the path of seeking God who relates to me. The path of the impersonal uh, is not seeking a relationship, not seeking a, uh, that's infinite co uh, consciousness and relationship to me, just seeking it in itself. And so the, uh, the uh, impersonal is uh, uh, the infinite consciousness beyond all idea of relationship, beyond all idea of uh, diversity. Uh, there is no world to Brahman. When you get to Brahman, that's why it's said that from within our state of ignorance now, when we see the world and all this diversity, we can't understand how this came to be. When we attain to Brahman, the highest uh, reality, then all of this disappears and there's no question to ask. There's, no, uh, there's nothing to be understood. You see that no, this was... Uh, this was the truth all along, and my way of looking at things was itself faulty. So, uh, again, consciousness means, I mean, the personal or personhood means responsive consciousness, responsive consciousness. So going a little deeper into our analysis of this distinction between the personal and the impersonal. The person that's following the path of the impersonal what is it that they seek? What is and how is it that they seek it? If we're following a path, we're looking for something. We're going down a path to reach something. We're seeking something. And so seeking something means that, in a, in a sense, it means that we're asking a question or we ask, we're asking a complex of questions. So what are the questions that a seeker on the impersonal path uh, asks? They don't ask, who made this universe? Or where is God and how can I, uh, how can I find God? Uh, who is God and how can I relate myself to God? How can I find myself in God? How can I worship God? How can I love God? A person seeking the impersonal is asking questions like, what is reality itself? What is existence itself? We see right now that, and we experience all the time, things exist. We say, oh, the podium is up uh, on the platform. Oh, the altar is uh, uh, in the alcove. 
or the, uh, the, the, the temple is built in such and such a style. Every time we talk, talk about something, we're saying that it is. I'm not feeling well today. Well, I've just posited the fact that I am. I'm not feeling well today, or I am fe I'm feeling great today. I'm positing the fact that I am. Oh, so-and-so is uh, sitting over there, and so-and-so is sitting over there. Uh, uh, we're positing the existence of things. What does it mean to say that something is? That the, uh, in the Vedanta temple on Vedanta place, we have pews instead of chairs. We have a few chairs too, but we have pews. We're talking about something which is. The pews are, the chairs are, the Vedanta temple is on Vedanta place, which is. Everything that we talk about has isness. It has existence. What is this isness? I am, you are. What do I mean, I am? What do I mean, you are? What is this isness about things? So a path on a person on the path of the impersonal asks questions like, "What is, does? What is this isness? What is the isness? What does it mean that this is? What does it mean that that is? What does it mean that this is? What's the common factor? All of these things are, but what's the common factor is that they all are. This is different from that. That's different from that. That's different from that. But all of them are. That's the common factor. So a person on the path of the impersonal might ask, one of the questions you might ask is, what is isness itself? What is existence itself? All of these things exist, but what is that isness? We say that, oh, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, uh, are you aware that there is a Vedanta society on Vedanta place? Well, yes, I'm aware of, uh, of that. Are you aware of the fact that people have come for a lecture today at 11 o'clock? Yes, I'm aware of that. Do you see that tree over there? Yes, I'm aware of the tree. Yes, we don't always use the word aware, but I'm using it intentionally to show what it is we're talking about. Oh, did you see the uh, parking lot? Uh, yes, I'm aware of, I went and saw the parking lot. I'm aware of the parking lot. Are you aware what time it is? Yes, I'm aware what time it is. We're aware of uh, all of these things. What does it mean to be aware? What does awareness itself mean? We use all of these terms, but what does awareness? Everything that I know, everything that I experience, I experience in awareness. But what is awareness itself? What is awareness itself? So a person on the path of the impersonal asks questions like this. What is awareness itself? I'm aware of the universe, but what does that mean? What does it mean? We say, well, Look it up in the dictionary, Swami. Well, no, a person on the path of the impersonal doesn't go to the dictionary. They seek what the reality of awareness is. Everything is. What does it mean that everything is? What is isness? What is awareness? So they're seeking that. A person on the path of the impersonal is seeking what is reality? What is real? In the midst of all of this that changes, everything is changing every moment. Even a stone is changing every moment. There's not a, a, a fraction of a second in which a stone is exactly the same. It's changing every moment. Uh, it, it, uh, that was one of the many, many discoveries and one of the more obvious discoveries of modern physics, that uh, everything is dynamic. Everything is in motion every moment. Uh, things appear to be uh, stable, things appear to be still, especially things like uh, rocks and mountains and planets and so forth. No, they're changing every moment. Everything is changing every moment. Uh, it's just that certain patterns uh, stay stable and, uh, long enough uh, so that we see them over time and think that the, th the system is stable. No, but within itself it's constantly changing. And so uh, everything, everything, is, uh, everything is changing. But how is it that I know that everything changes? So the person on the path of the impersonal is seeking for that which is the real in the midst of all of this change. Vedanta says, 
And again, this is one of those propositions that you can say, well, just because Vedanta says it, it doesn't make it true. But if you think about it, you'll see that, no, Vedanta says it because it is true. Vedanta says that uh, that which wasn't uh, in the past uh, and will not be in the future, it doesn't even really exist now. It's just appearing. And so that applies to everything that we experience. Everything we experience is constantly changing. Changing means it's what it is now, it wasn't in the past, and it won't be the same in the future. It's constantly changing. So everything is just an appearance. But it's an appearance of what? What is it an appearance of? So a person seeking the impersonal asks questions like this. What is the reality? It's what is real in the midst of all of these changing phenomena? What is real? What is that which is eternal? That which is not subject to time? What not subject to space? What is existence itself? What is the isness of things? What is consciousness? What is awareness? Those are questions on the uh, uh, path of the uh, impersonal. So they're not seeking person, they're seeking principle. Again, principle in the sense of something intensely real. So for a person on the personal path, what are they seeking? What do they, uh, what kind of question does a person on the uh, personal path, that is seeking God, a lover of God, a devotee of God, someone who's seeking God, who wants to find God. What do they ask? They're looking for, uh, uh, for the beloved. Where is God? How do I find God? How do I learn to meditate on God? How do I focus on God? How do I learn to feel the presence of God? How do I become aware of God? Uh, who is God? Where, where is God? And with time, that question should change. Not where is God and who is God, but who are you? Who are you? Meaning me, the devotee, addressing God. Who are you? Ramakrishna, when he began his worship of the Divine Mother Kali in the Kali Temple in Dakshineshwar, he began uh, to worship the Divine Mother, but along with his worship, he asked, Oh, Mother, are you real? Are you real? Do you actually exist? Saints like Ram Prasad and Kamalakanta, they said that they had your vision. If you're real, why don't I have your vision? Where are you? Are you real? Are you true? That's a very interesting thing. He didn't uh, go to others and say, say hey, this, this uh, image here in the temple, this uh, uh, naked black woman that's in the temple here, uh, is, is she real? Uh, is she, uh, uh, the, uh, does she really exist? No, he went to the Divine Mother and said, Mother, are you real? Mother, are you real? He said, for those who doubted the existence of God, he said, then pray to God and say, God, I don't know whether you exist or not. If you do, please reveal yourself. That's an extraordinary thing. If I don't believe in God, why should I ask God? If, I don't, if I'm not sure God exists, why should I ask God? Because if I ask other people, all I'm getting is secondhand testimony. Some people say God exists, and I ask another person, they say, no, that's all baloney. That's ridiculous. Who, who in, the, in the modern world, who could possibly believe in God? And somebody else says, no, God is real. So I'm not going to get an answer there. I can read books. I read one book uh, by Dawkins, and it says the whole belief in God is uh, absurd. Uh, people should grow up and get rid of these infantile projections. And then I read a, a, a book by some great saint who says God is intensely real. This universe isn't real. Uh, God is real. And so Ramakrishna said, well, don't ask uh, the common idiots in the world like me. Uh, go to God and ask God, are you real? Find out from God if God is real. That's an extraordinary thing. It's, uh, yes, it's not, uh, not strictly logical in ordinary terms of logic. Psychologically and spiritually, it's 
uh, far more logical than any other answer. So a person on the personal path seeks God. Who are you? Where are you? One of the things that if, we're, if we believe in God, uh, or if we even have a provisional belief in God, one of the things we should learn is that as far as we can, as far as we can, as far often as we can remember during the day and night, we should remember that God is always second person, either second person or first person. For Ramakrishna, God became first person because he was so identified with God. Uh, but for us on the path, we're still relating ourselves to God. And so God is never it. If I'm talking about one of you, one of you, uh, if, if, if you had not come today, or we're talking about somebody who's not here today, we're talking about them in the third person, that, oh, so-and-so couldn't make it today, they're not feeling well, or they didn't want to come, or they saw that Rupananda was speaking and said, well, I'm not going to that lecture. And uh, so um, uh, they, they're not come. And then suddenly they walk through the door. Have you ever noticed that when you're speaking about a person in third person, even if you're saying good things about them, even if you're saying good things about them, if they suddenly appear, you feel that somehow there's, a, there's a suddenly a twinge of guilt. There's a, t a twinge of, I've been doing something I shouldn't have been doing. Why is that? Because instinctively, not uh, consciously usually, but instinctively we realize that a person is never third person. Third person is talking about a person as an object. So we're talking about uh, somebody who's not here right now, and suddenly they come through the door, and we feel like we've been doing something that we shouldn't have been doing, even though we were saying nice things. And of course, we were saying bad things, even more so, but if it's not nice, <laughs> nice things, we, uh, even then we feel a twinge. And that's because we recognize that a person is never a third person, and a person is never an object. And so God is never an object. God is uh, the one person who is closer to us than our own ego. In the uh, Quran, it says that God is uh, closer uh, to you than the jugular vein. That's a physical way of speaking. Uh, what it uh, means is that God is closer to you than the most vital part of your uh, physiology. Well, God is closer even than the uh, jugular vein. God is closer to us even than the ego. And so God is the one person who is the soul of our own soul, and yet a person, one who relates to us, one who hears us, one who knows us more than we know ourselves. And so with God, we should try to make a practice of always thinking that of God as you, not of God as it. Not that, okay, I'm going to meditate on God now. No, I'm going to meditate on you. You are here with me. Not, oh, here's the shrine, I'm going to bow down. God is manifest in a special way on the shrine, so I'll bow down to God in the, in the temple. No, no, I'm not bowing down to it. I'm bowing down to you. I've come here to a place where you are specially manifest. You're always with me. You're with, in all things. You're always with me and around me. But here I've come to your special home, so I'm bowing down to you in a special way here. So for the person on the personal path, it's always important to remember that a person is never third person. And never, there are two persons, first person and second person. Third person is not person at all. Third person is object. That's, uh, you're talking about people as rocks and, uh, and sticks. And so uh, to remember that if I'm on the path of devotion, if I'm seeking God, I'm seeking you. I'm not seeking God, this third person. No, I'm seeking you. So the person on the personal path is uh, uh, seeking, uh, 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 seeking you, seeking the beloved. One doesn't pray to the impersonal, one does pray to the personal, because the personal is that which is that con infinite consciousness which relates to me, 
which understands me. Sri Ramakrishna said that God hears even the footfall of an ant. Is he not going to hear the prayer of, prayers of a sincere devotee? God hears even the footfall of an ant. Will he not hear your prayers? So that's the idea of the personal, uh, personal path, that yes, God hears everything that I say. I may not get an immediate response to my prayer, but I, God has heard my prayer. And when and if a response is appropriate, God will bring it about. And that as you begin the path of devotion and you follow it, at first the feeling is that, well, I think God is, maybe God is, I have some belief that God is, I'm praying and I'm worshiping and all of that, but I don't feel any response. Well, no, if you continue, you can't pray for long and you can't worship for long without beginning to feel that uh, someone is on the other end, some infinite, all-blessed, uh, all-wise, all-loving, even considerate being is there on the other end receiving everything that it is that I say, everything that it is that I offer, including myself. And so the nature of devotion is that it builds faith. As you practice, you begin to feel, yes, I'm not praying to the wall, I'm praying to you and you are there listening. No, even long before you've heard any words from God, you don't see flash of lightning and hear words from God, but still you begin to sense that yes, you're listening, you're there, you're with me, you're hearing that which I'm saying. So this is the personal path. The, uh, the impersonal uh, path is not a path of worship and prayer. It's also a great, great path, uh, but the psychology is different. And yes, it's possible to combine the two, but even when you combine the two, all, one will always be the dominant one. Say if there are many ways of, there are as many ways of combining the two as there are people who want to combine them. Some people are all devotee and some people are all jnani, a follower of the path of the impersonal. But many people uh, like something of both. But if you like something of both, almost always you'll find that one is the dominant one and the other is the subsidiary. So say if I'm uh, a, a devotee, and this is just an example, not what everyone does, but an example, uh, that if I'm a, a devotee, but I also like the path of the impersonal, so I like to meditate on things, like I like to, a wonderful meditation for anybody, even a person on the devotional path, is to just try to feel the sense of isness, that everything is, everything is, the chair is, the podium is, this body is, the building is, other people are, but to try to feel the isness which is expressing itself in all of these different ways. You begin to feel that there's an ocean of existence, an ocean of existence in which all of these phenomena are just waves in that ocean of existence. It's a wonderful meditation when you begin to feel that, that everything is just a manifestation of this ocean of indescribable existence. And so you're a devotee, but you like to meditate on that once in a while. And so you... Uh, start by praying to your chosen ideal. You pray to God, oh God, let me, let me feel just your bare existence, just your bare existence, just the isness, uh, which is your infinite being. And then you try to feel just isness. Again, not relating to it, but just isness. Or if you're a follower of the path of the impersonal, and yet you appreciate devotion, then say you pray to Sri Ramakrishna, and you see Sri Ramakrishna, or Jesus, or whomever, you see them as a manifestation of this infinite uh, impersonal reality, which is taken on personal form. In the puja, which we do in our tradition, there's a beautiful meditation, a three-verse, three-stanza uh, meditation on Sri Ramakrishna, written by Swami Abhedananda. And in that, the first verse describes Sri Ramakrishna as the infinite impersonal reality. The second verse describes Sri Ramakrishna as the personal God. And the third and last verse, or stanza, 
describes Sri Ramakrishna as an incarnation of God. And so it's this beautiful relationship of the, of the impersonal, infinite reality, indescribable, to the personal uh, reality, and yet beyond this world, and then to that same reality manifested in the world as a living being like you and me. And so uh, uh, these can be combined, but we have to find that which is our main approach in life and then find a way to harmonize them so that we're not going in this direction and that direction. We're going uh, part of the day this way and part of the day that way. No, we want to go in the same direction all the time. So we have to find some way that these two connect, the connecting point for us, where they connect. And then if we do something of both, we'll feel that both are taking us to the same place. So let me say a few more words about uh, illust to illustrate this difference between the personal and the impersonal, because again, it's critical to understanding, or to a deeper understanding of Vedanta. Yes, you can uh, practice Vedanta. In India also, most people don't know the difference between the personal and the impersonal, so it's not uh, something which uh, anybody is born with. But if you want a deeper understanding, and if you want a more conscious approach to what it is you're doing and how to do it, then it's a very important uh, distinction. There, uh, 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 Sri Ramakrishna used to say, uh, because he had most of his uh, f uh, followers, and he recommended for most people the path of the personal. But some of his followers, not just Vivekananda, some of his followers were on the path of the impersonal. So he used to say to his devotees uh, that to feel as though uh, God's will, uh, that you were a leaf being carried by the will of God, that God's will is carrying you where it will, that everything that happens in your life is happening by the action of God. And to those that were on the impersonal path, he said, feel that you're like a dried leaf being blown by the wind of circumstance. That's a whole different category, a whole different psychology. To think that God is doing everything, that everything that happens is happening by the will of God, then you, O oh Divine Mother, Mother, you are doing everything. Everything that happens, whether I like it or not, that's not the question. You're doing it, and so I love it, because you're doing it. This is the idea of the devotee. Yes, that's something that takes a long time to internalize so we really mean it, but we begin by trying to mean it, and gradually we get to where we do mean it, that yes, Mother, everything that happens is happening by, by your action. That's a very different, psychological, psychologically very different from the idea that everything is done by the, will of, by the, uh, by the wind of circumstance, just the, the, the nature of the world is such that these things are happening. But I'm the witness of all. I'm the witnessing consciousness, unaffected by anything, so let anything happen. Let whatever happens, whatever will happen, let it happen. Let me not be disturbed by anything. Let me be free as the witness of everything. That's a very different, equally good, but a very different psychology. So one is the path of the devotee, one is the path of the uh, jnani. Interpretation of events. The bhakta sees everything happening through the will of God. The jnani sees it happening either by the uh, force of circumstance or else by the force of karma. Um, uh, the force of karma. There's an uh, underlying harmony beneath these two, uh, two approaches. They're, they're uh, different as approaches, but not exclusive uh, of each other, and certainly not contradictory. As I said, they can be combined. Uh, that uh, uh, both, through both paths, I realize the same reality. Because it's in Vedanta, it's not that there are two realities. There's the impersonal and there's the personal. No, it's the same reality with two aspects. If you realize God, you realize the same being that the person on the path of the impersonal realizes. Uh, but you've realized it through a different aspect. 
And when you come there, when you come to God, you find the, the whole. God is not divisible into, well, this is uh, God's uh, impersonal part and this is God's uh, personal part. No, if we go deeply enough into the reality of God, we find uh, uh, the, the reality itself. That's why you find followers of, uh, of Christianity, the great saints, some of the great saints of Christianity, some of the great saints of Judaism, some of the great saints of Islam, uh, that they realized the impersonal reality. They might not have called it the impersonal reality. They didn't call it Brahman. Uh, they used different terminology. But if you look at what they're saying experientially, you see they're speaking of the same thing that the great seers of uh, Vedanta did. You have like Saint uh, uh, Angela uh, di Foligno, a uh, great uh, uh, saint of Italy, I think of the 12th century, around the 12th century. She said that in her deepest uh, 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 states of union with God, she went to, a, a, uh, to, a, uh, to the, the depths of God where even the Trinity was no longer existent, where there was no person of the Trinity, there was no Father, there was no Son, there was no Holy Spirit, just infinite being of God uh, that was completely indescribable. If you read her descriptions of this, you see that it's uh, she's speaking of the the depths of the impersonal reality, uh, and so with other Christian saints and uh, Sufi saints, etc. So um, one sees God as person, another sees God as reality, ultimate reality. One sees their, or seeks their identity with ultimate reality. I am Brahman. I am the infinite reality. Another seeks God as person and seeks to relate themselves uh, as person. That seems very different, to realize myself as the infinite or to realize my relationship to God. Well, no, even that is not that different. Why? Because the devotee's standpoint is that, yes, God is that infinite ocean, that infinite ocean, and yet I'm a wave on the ocean of God. The ocean doesn't belong to the wave. The wave belongs to the ocean. So the attitude of the devotee is that I belong to God. God is the infinite ocean of existence. And yes, God is everything. I have no separate existence from God. There's only God. But does God belong to me or do I belong to God? God is the infinite. I'm just a wave on the ocean of God. And so you see the similarity between that and the jnani who says, I am the infinite. I am the infinite. So that's why Swami Vivekananda said that ultimately when we get to the heights of spiritual life, let everything be either all I or let everything be all thou, but let there not be a second. If I seek the personal God, God is everything. You, O oh Lord, you, O oh Divine Mother, you are everything. There is nothing but you. Uh, uh, there's not even an I left, there's just you. Uh, or if I'm seeking the, uh, the impersonal reality, there's nothing but the, the, nothing but the infinite, that which I am where even the word I no longer applies, because when there's only the non-dual reality, then where is even the sense of I am? Then there's just the infinite. And so uh, uh, these are the, uh, some of the dis differences, or the, the uh, differences, and then the ultimate unity of these two approaches. So in our spiritual life, what we need to do is to come to some sort of understanding, either by thinking about it, or most people come to an understanding just by following the path and just sort of finding, well, I like this and I don't like that so much. That's okay. That's what most people do. But one way or another, uh, uh, either consciously, deliberately, or just unconsciously by the fact that uh, we're 
trying to figure things out, we come to the point where we realize that, no, it's primarily what I seek is the impersonal reality. I'm not interested in a loving relationship so much. That's not my nature. What I'm seeking is what is the reality itself? What is existence itself? What is consciousness itself? Or, if I'm a devotee, then yes, I'm not so interested in things like reality and consciousness and existence. What I'm seeking is love. What I'm seeking is uh, this infinite, all-loving being who again uh, approaches us uh, not just with love, but love that's uh, so tender that it's, uh, that it's, you could say that it's with consider infinite consideration. Uh, that that's, uh, that's what I'm seeking, this all-loving being, all-wise being, from whom I'm seeking guidance, from whom I seek uh, protection, fr from whom I seek wisdom, from whom I seek infinite, uh, infinite love. And so one way or another, we find our way to one of these two paths. And then whether we f that will determine whether our predominant path is bhakti yoga or jnana yoga. And then raja and karma, that's a whole different affair. That's, uh, that depends on our nature with respect to practice. So I'll close. Om Dhyo Shantihi Antariksham Shantihi Prithivi Shantihi Apashantihi Oshadaya Shantihi Vanaspataya Shantihi Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Sarvam Shantihi Shanti Reva Shanti Sama Shanti Redhi Om Shanti 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 Peace is in the heavens, peace is in the sky, peace is on earth, peace is in the waters, in the plants and the trees. The gods are peace. Peace is the nature of truth. All is peace. Peace alone, peace. May that peace, real peace, be with us all. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us and to all the beings of the universe.